Mana 3 Media. My name is Steve Bowman, and in this podcast, I'm going to try to distill the knowledge I've acquired as a professional musician over the last 30 years into a series of episodes that I hope might help a striving player save time, money, or pain from their journey. Little letters from me to you about what I saw, what I did, and what I could have done better. This is Letters to an Aspiring Musician. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Letters to an Aspiring Musician from beautiful Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Um, You may notice that my voice sounds better today than it has in the last couple episodes. That's because my astute producer, David Wilkinson, came over and set up a proper mic. Today is a special episode. I have a guest today uh, who's a friend that I met when he happened to move in next door to me um, in Nashville. And uh, besides being a great neighbor and a solid friend, you may recognize uh, the name JT Cure as the longtime bassist for Chris Stapleton, or uh, from his band before that, the Johnson Brothers, or from seeing his name in liner notes because he does a ton of sessions. And last year, he was nominated by the Academy of Country Music, ACM, for Bassist of the Year. Ladies and gentlemen, JT Cure. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Hey, man, we miss you at the, the old neighborhood over here. I know. I got to say, it was such a luxury uh, when we lived next door to each other. Having a buddy next door was so great. It'd be like, uh, you say, hey, man, want to play darts? And I'd be like, yeah, well, let me get my shoes on and walk down the driveway, and then we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because we had a ton in common, and we've uh, enjoyed, you know, sports, comedy, uh the same burger places. Uh, We've done a lot of fun stuff. But what's interesting is we haven't spoken as much about music, I don't think. We've probably spoken more about disc golf and cats than we have music. Uh, So today we are going to focus on music and get into some stuff that maybe we haven't discussed. I'm excited because you guys, when you do a full tour season, I mean, you're playing what? 30 to 50,000 people a pop all summer. I mean, how many of those people are musicians that walk out of there thinking, who are those people and how do I get from here to there? Now, I know that you are from Elkhorn City, Kentucky. That's right. We had uh, one stoplight <laughs> and no fast food places. I mean, that's amazing. So I guess... That's the place to start because here you are doing what you do now, but you started in this in this place where I can't imagine there was a ton of music. What was the first live music you remember seeing and, and hearing growing up there in Elkhorn City? It was a lot of bluegrass. Um, I think everyone played back home, um, played something, uh, any kind of town festival or any event, you know, someone's getting married. It's all, there was always a bluegrass band there. And for the longest time I took that for granted, like just that there would be bluegrass and, and, you know, you get a certain age, you're like, Oh God, not another yeah. bluegrass band. 
<laughs> um, and then I kind of circled back, you know, after college and was really starting to think, man, that that was some hip music that I was exposed to at an early age. I just didn't really know it or understand it at the time. You know, Patty Loveless is from my hometown. Um, this is the same small town in East Kentucky. You know, I grew up right off of Patty Loveless Boulevard. Oh, wow. I think the first um, kind of, you know, big deal show that I saw was Patty at the high school gymnasium. Wow. And it was funny enough that years later, I would end up playing some music with the guitar player that was on that gig that I didn't even know, Kenny Vaughn, recording and, and some, you know, shows on the road with him over the years. And it was kind of full circle. Well, so you say you were kind of, because you were a kid and we all have to rebel, uh, you were kind of not into the bluegrass stuff you saw growing up. What were you into musically? Were you listening to radio or buying records or anything like that or CDs? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so we had CMT, uh -huh. which was really big when that we would watch me and my brother would watch when we when the parents were home and then when they happened to not be home we would switch it over to ntv ah. <laughs> you know catch all that it was right around when you know red hot chili pepper oh, yeah. coming out of like green day had dropped nookie on us uh -huh. so it's a combination of those two things where it's really like that's how we found out about music well you know one of the interesting things about uh, bluegrass is that you kind of can't play it unless you're really good. It, I mean, uh, it involves uh, grooving on 16th notes and and locking in at quick tempos. So it's funny that the music that you kind of, you say everybody played and there was always music around, but what they were playing, it's kind of like people must have been pretty good uh, technically, like burners around. Was that the situation, do you think? Yeah, there was good players. Most of them, uh, were, it was, you know, folks that worked on cars and worked in the mines, and that was what they did for fun. Um, so it wasn't a lot of people that were actually making money doing it. It was mostly recreational uh, bluegrass Um but there, a lot of good players, you know, East Kentucky's got a lot of talented um, folks that has come out of it. And, you know, that there was a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, when I started playing with, with some bluegrass, because it was unavoidable, like you didn't like it, you had to play it because that was the only thing that you could yeah. play. If you were going to play, you had to play bluegrass. Right. And, and it, it's also, you know, there's a lot of nuance and subtlety to bluegrass that um, a casual listener might not pick up on. Um, but when you're playing it, you you, you kind of pick up on the, on certain things like that that you you develop an appreciation for it. Well, that's a huge point because one of the things you guys do now is you play music with kind of a limited instrumentation in that it's guitar, bass, drums, vocals, 
And it means that the parts you play and the feel and the dynamics have to be perfect. And they have to be well thought out and felt just uh, perfectly as a band. And so it's interesting that bluegrass kind of gave you some of these um, early facets to your playing. Do you think? I think so. It all has something to do with it, I think. It's just a stew, you know, and that was one of the ingredients. I grew up playing in band, played horn. How I ended up on bass was, you know, playing, eventually playing tuba, um, electric bass at the basketball games. Um, you know, with that came, you know, little school bands that they were big to me at the time. Yeah. Um, we would play, you know, Black Sabbath and Green Day. Oh, and see? That kind of stuff. It's just a lot of different things. It's just a product of where I grew up yeah. and when I grew up. So your first instrument was horn, which led to tuba, which led to bass. It's so interesting, I think, how that whole thing happens. Just the, you know, whatever, the universe conspires. My son is a bassist, and it was because he played cello. You know, it's like, mm. <laughs> and and if you see something else, you might end up doing something else. So you never know. Yeah. Every instrument you play ends up affecting the way you play the next instrument. And, and all yeah. of it fits. Um, I read somewhere that you used to work on a, on a four track recorder in high school and that you were doing all the instruments. Was that the case? Wow. You read that somewhere. I did. <laughs> <laughs> did you accidentally say that once? <laughs> yeah, no, I did. It's really some of the, the best times I ever had was in the garage with a four track you know, playing a drum track and then putting the bass on top of it and then putting guitars on top of that. And then I think what got me into that um, was I was a kind of a, a computer nerd and, you know, MIDI songs were all the rage and you could take a song and dissect every part of it. Yeah. And hear each individual track. So I was like, wow, maybe I can do some of that um, and then I started trying to program mini songs and all this other stuff but yeah that was me I would spend days working on one song just trying to get every part of it and you know it sounded like crap you know I'm sure <laughs> what did it sound like do you think I mean what was the style I'm sure that it had a lot of Beatles inspired stuff on there the Beatles anthology came out sometime in the 90s, probably mm -hmm. when I was 12 or 13. And it came on KET or PBS, what we had in Kentucky. I remember watching it being enamored with it. And I eventually got, you know, the VHS tapes of it for Christmas one year and the CDs eventually. And that's what I listened to probably nonstop for years wow so i'm sure that had a lot to do with that inspiration for I me mean, it still in inspires me to this day yeah that get back film that came out um watched it over the holidays with my brother's family and it was i could not look away from it it's <laughs> still the most amazing thing i've ever seen isn't it amazing yeah you know my son ben is a, a beatles nut and uh, and so I've been watching some little clips with him and just like, wow, 
I'm so grateful they got that. And the whole time I think, I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. <laughs> yeah, here I am. This was filmed, yeah. You're watching it thinking that you're not supposed to be in the room with them. Yeah. It's wild. You know, that creative process and to see that it's really the same, that it's the same way when we sit down as a group to come up with an arrangement or to write a song, it's the, they. It's the same way that they did it. Yeah, is the same way that we did it. I had no idea. We just thought that it's some kind of magical process that it comes together really organically. Except that these things that are coming together are like legendary things you recognize. Like he spits out one sentence, second sentence, and then the third sentence is the one you recognize. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that one all my life. You know, let it go, let it, uh, how about let it be? Yeah, let it be. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I see is all these things that are kind of building the interesting and necessary facets that have put you in this position you guys are doing this thing where it's um, basic instrumentation. You're also playing songs, not just big songs, but intimate songs and doing all this in front of big venues, which is probably hard too. And so let me read this quote. Um, I wrote to the great Derek Mixon and he is your longtime drummer. Uh, you've played with him for years, I know. Yeah. He said, JT is a great friend and he's my favorite bass player. I've never heard anyone that plays or sounds like him. You can hear his personality and everything he plays. He's an incredible feel player, very melodic, and has a great sense of when to step out and create a moment. His tone is refined and always appropriate, and his approach to a song makes my job as a drummer very easy. We never have to talk about what we're going to play it just happens. So that's what he said. And it's funny because the things he says in here are really, it's like an outline for what I wanted to speak of with you, the things I couldn't quite figure out even how to articulate. But there's so much there. Yes, um, have to get him something nice for his well, birthday this year. While we're on it, Derek is one of my favorite drummers. I used to go watch him play 15 years ago at uh third and lensley's playing with the levies and i would just sit there yeah. and think my goodness i thought you know i'm older than him but i thought when i grow up i want to be Derek mixon you know <laughs> <So>. <laughs> for sure and you guys have such an intricate level of grooving but he says you have a great sense of when to step out and create a moment tell me about that i don't know what he's talking about <laughs> <laughs> you know, a great musician knows when to play and when not to play. Yeah. How do you know when not to play, when to create a moment? I think it's, if you're a bass player, you just kind of have to train yourself to stay out of the way. You don't want to be on top of the vocal lines or you can't step on something that the guitars play in. So you just have to hunt and peck for a space. I guess we're not playing with a keyboard or all this ancillary stuff. That's what I mean. So you're trying to fill up as much space as possible on certain tracks. So you try to fit to make a mood or make it 
sound bigger. Like the who sounded like thunder because everybody was playing like crazy stuff. Yeah. All at the same time, you know, and it made a feeling, you know, a more tender sounding stuff. You just lay back and let, you know, and that's the thing with playing with an amazing uh, singer like Chris is some songs you just play whole notes and stay out of the way and let yeah. the song happen. Yeah. Just stay out of the way and let someone like that, some powerful vocal thing happen. But also it takes someone recognizing that staying out of the way is the right thing to do. And then it, it takes someone knowing how to stay out of the way because it might involve you playing notes a certain way or playing nothing at all. Yeah. And it's all about listening. That's one of the things that makes Derek so great is he's constantly listening. You know, we go from hashing a song out in the studio and we come up with a, an arrangement of how it should go. And then we play it on the road, you know, every night for four or five years. Hmm. The song kind of changes over that time. And it's not like he's on autopilot or anything. Like he's always listening. Little things happen as the evolution of a song goes. Yeah. Over time that he's right there and he picks up everything. He'll hit a guitar lick with, with Chris or, you know, we'll leave a, a hole in a song to create like a stumbling effect or something. And yeah. he's right there with me. It's amazing. And we, we never talk about any of it. Yeah. It's not orchestrated. He's so in tune with the song that it he's on top of. It. And it's amazing. Well, and it's such a pleasure to hear when two people uh, with such refined nature match and do that together. You know, it's, it's kind of like dancing. It's like, it would never work if two people were trying to dance and explain to each other what to do next. Like, all right, uh, go left, go right. Hey, you know, <laughs> uh, It has to be kind of a mutually felt, understood thing. You just kind of know what to do. Yeah, that's what I think is so interesting. When you speak about coming up with different styles, like the technicalities, the subtleties of bluegrass are some of the things that latched on to you early on that, you know, I'm from Oakland, California. I didn't have the benefit of that. I might've had something else, yeah. but I was never looking at this style of music in that type of way. And, and so I think it's fascinating that here it is, your particular uh, path and evolution ends up putting you in a place where you're so valuable at this point. You're doing something so subtle that I can't even put it into words. <laughs> so. People ask me what, why I did something like that or what, what I, sometimes I can't even remember what lines I played on the record because there's still some element of it's like magic is the only yeah. way that I know how to describe it. Um, yeah. To me, listening to music, you know, before I've, started playing music it was like magic hearing it and you know i don't know if you have this issue but 
ever since I became a musician, I can't listen to music the same way as I did. And it lost the mystery of it. Is it because you're giving every song an autopsy now while you listen? Is that why? Right. I'm picking everything (laughs) apart and I can't listen to it as the whole. I just hear parts, you know, and that's, I wish I could get back to that spot. And then in the studio, you kind of get some of that magic back a little bit when you're doing the creating part of it yeah so i guess that's a that's pretty fair trade well but when you're creating in a in a quiet studio you can also uh develop different types of feelings and maybe more immediate more intimate feelings and you guys do that so well of course but i wonder how do you do that at the enormo dome in front of you know fifty thousand people is it monitoring? How do you keep the feeling together when you're, you know, 30 feet from Derek and there's all this craziness going on out front of you? I think monitoring, I mean, you're hitting on a point there. Uh, we, we use four monitors still. We don't Whoa. play with ears like a majority of the, the folks out there. Wow, that surprises Keep me. a low stage volume. I, I can hear everything Chris is doing through his amp. Wow. I'm standing right beside Derek. We're, it's kind of orchestrated that way. We're, we, we've got a tight set on stage where I'm cl- really close to Derek. I can ride on his hi-hat side. I can hear when the the pedal hits, you know, the, the wow. hi-hat. Even with the, the noise and the screaming, and, you know, it's not typically happening during the song. Uh, there's only been a few times when it's been hard to hear because of I mean, I play a 40-watt amp stage no matter where we play. And uh, it, it's mostly just we keep the same kind of feel that we have everywhere in the dressing room. Um, we have a little rehearsal set up. I mean, we're tight-knit and we play quiet. Yeah. If you start low, you can always get loud and the the sound system and, and the sound engineers and all that stuff can make it loud. If you start loud, you can't probably get quiet. You're right. And I think it ties in with the amount of notes you're playing too. If you uh, start with quarter notes, you can always build up, Yeah. but you might start there and see if that's enough. Yeah. Well, I had one other thing I wanted to uh, throw on you. You know, this is a, podcast for aspiring professional musicians and you know thinking about all those players that leave uh one of your shows and think geez what would get me from here to there if you guys were going to bring on an additional player maybe you decided you did want a little more you know something uh, filling out the sound making it bigger for some show if you were to audition a new band member there would be certain things that you'd be looking for. And I was just wondering if it would be possible for you to describe what type of person would most easily get a gig with Chris Stapleton. Um, It would be someone that was easy to get along with. Yeah. A lot of what we do is like, what, what would you, how would you pick out a, someone that you're going to live with yeah you know because that's essentially what you're doing for most of the year you're you're living with this person 
And mm-hmm. so you want the same kind of, if you have a family, um, you want certain types of folks around, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's family friendly and grounded kind of folks. So which that's the atmosphere that we have out there on the road, yeah. a big family. And sometimes Chris has the youngins out. It's a very tame, I guess, not what typical people think of when they think of a touring act but it's mm-hmm. it's a very tame backstage and so we would probably look for someone that's laid back um it's fairly grounded i mean you can almost audition someone without even hearing them play yeah being in the room with them isn't that funny if you know their personality you know kind of how that's going to come across in their playing if they're listening to what you have to say and taking it all in they're going to be good at listening to what you're doing on stage and playing around what you're doing to fit the overall groove of whatever it is you're doing. So it's, I think the most important thing is that you're not a jerk (laughs) (laughs) and you're good at listening and you're good at anything else. What you just said is something I really hadn't considered. And and that's that you're going to be the type of musician that you are as a person. Yeah, And uh, it never occurred to me that you can audition somebody just by having a barbecue with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can uh, sit next to them on a plane and know how they'd be as a musician. It's really fascinating. You can emulate certain heroes and all that, but you'll never play like them because you, you're a different person. You have a different personality. Yeah. I remember hanging with you guys one night and... Uh, Everyone is soft-spoken, light conversation, intelligent, you know, casual, uh, yeah. just a really friendly, easy group to hang around. And uh, I guess, obviously, you'd be looking for that right off the bat. So somebody to fit the vibe. You know, it's Nashville, whoever, they're going to be able to play. Yeah. And hold, it's not a matter of, I mean, if we're playing the music surely anybody can play (laughs) someone here is going to be able to pick up a song and go with it it's about the feel and yet if somebody is raised maybe uh, in new york city and goes to berkeley school of music and comes out they wouldn't have a chance in playing with your band you know myself included if i came out here when i was 19 I wouldn't have known what you guys were doing. I just knew it was great. You know, it's like, uh, there's no way I could have gotten a gig musically or personality wise. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, I don't you know, know about that. well, uh, but the subtleties that you guys are hitting, uh, uh, I wasn't there yet. And it's interesting that you were kind of guided into this through uh, your upbringing and, and like, you know, all these things we can't even take credit for. It's like you're, you're, you're born and raised in a certain place and you hear certain things and meet certain people. And next thing you know, you're nominated for bassist of the year. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, if, if any of the uh, qualities that you outlined in a previous podcast was would apply to me, I would say it was probably mostly luck, you know, and I didn't make a much of a fuss. So here we are. Well, and then uh, it's maybe lucky to meet Chris Stapleton at 19 as you did, but it wasn't luck that here it is all this time later and, and you're the only guy he can play with. That's uh, the skill and the sensitivity to music and just all the stuff that 
makes you who you are as a player. Mm. So very nice. Well, what's going on now for you guys? You recording more? We've been in the studio wrapping up some recording. Um, We're about to start another tour. It, um, you know, we're still trying to make up some dates that we had to to postpone. Oh yeah, a couple years ago, you know, so we got. We'll be at the ACMs as the first thing back for us, which is probably here in a week or so. Oh, great. Um, and then we'll be doing the whole Grammy thing. It was postponed until April. And then after the award shows stuff is over, we'll start touring. Yeah. Well, you know, it's amazing. I mean, all the work you're doing. And then you guys are a level where you have to fit in like 10 or 12 award shows a year, too. So that's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, JT, I'm so grateful to uh, uh, speak to you about this stuff and so glad that young players are going to get to hear this. I mean, who else but someone in your position can convey this information? I mean, there aren't too many people that have reached the level you're at. And then when you get there, not too many people talking about it. So it's just huge that you came on and did this. And I really appreciate it. So. Well. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of the podcast. I've been listening to to it since you started. So ah. I'm thrilled that you would ask me to be a part of it. Well, I'm so glad. Hey, I look forward to uh, getting up there and uh, petting your kitties and maybe uh, throwing some disc golf. That would be great. <laughs> well, thank you again, JT Cure, and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Dave, you too. All right. Thanks again to JT Cure for joining me here on the podcast. You know, next week is our last episode. So please bring your tissue and join me here at Moomoo Lab Studios for our final episode of Letters to an Aspiring Musician. You know, folks, everything will be fine in the end. If things aren't fine, it's not the end. Thanks for listening to the show. It's part of the Mana 3 Media Network, and our title track, Cool Life, is provided by Loose. Want to submit a question for Steve? Just go to our show notes and click the link moomoolab.org. For more shows on our network, just search our podcast app for Mana 3 Media. That's M-A-N-A, the number three media. And of course, we'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe, and even tell a friend about us. We shall return next Wednesday.